0: Mr. Derek Vienhoff. Who's better known as Deke?
1: <gasps> Drinking liquor with
0: DJ Deke. We out laughing. We it's uh, basically geo uh, it comes from uh, you know international relations and it's usually influenced by uh, geographical factors. So, for example, Iran, uh, Iran has the Strait of Hormuz, and that is one of the busiest shipping lanes. And that's where the oil, for example, comes out of uh, the Middle East uh, out through the Strait of Hormuz you know and into the indian ocean and there's six other uh, what they call choke points and one of them is i don't know the arabic name but it is the choke point there between yemen and uh i believe north africa and that is a bone of contention right now with the uh with the houthis and uh the saudis bonding the uh the houthis in, in yemen but but that goes back many years to uh you know, uh who influences that that strait. And and again that uh I believe if you're going north that goes in through the Suez Canal. And uh that is another uh choke point that uh of course flared up in nineteen fifty six which almost resulted in a war when France and Britain uh, decided to try and put down uh, Anwar Nasser who was the uh, legitimate uh, president of Egypt at that time Oh yeah Nasser but, was uh, a popular G- guy yeah Oh he was and you know he he didn't last long I think 1970 he was uh he was out and you know they've had uh, Hosni Mubarak for example was in 19 19- 1982, and, you know, he's a a, a former general, uh, a general much like al-Sisi is today. Uh, When Morrissey, with the Muslim Brotherhood, uh, went into power briefly after the so-called Arab Spring, uh, you know, the U.S. didn't really uh, want him because he was going to change a lot of things. Unfortunately, you know, he discussed these publicly, and so people knew what he was up to, and... And so uh, it was the famous coup that was not a coup, and that's when Morsi was uh, ousted and uh, General, I forget his first name, but Al-Sisi is his last name, and uh, he was uh, propped into power. So that's that's basically a part of geopolitics as well, in that, um, you know, if, if you do not uh, bow down or kneel before the world hegemon, uh, then you're going to be replaced. And it's uh, as simple as that, and we can see that going on in Syria today. Yeah. But, um, ge- geopolitics is, is really, it's, it's international, it's, it's broad in scope, and, and it goes back, you know, even hundreds of years because you can tie all of these segments of history, you know, let's say you go back to Catherine the Great, uh, you know, who was the uh, Empress of Russia till 1792, uh, I believe, and, uh, she was the one, uh, you know, who who purchased or uh, annexed Crimea from an earlier power. And so it, it had been in, in uh, Russia's possession for uh, over 200 years until uh, his name from Ukraine, Khrushchev, Khrushchev when, when he was the, uh, the party leader for the USSR in 1954 at a drunken party, this is what I hear, is that he signed uh, or he agreed to uh, to let Crimea be Become a part of the Ukraine, and so um, you know. Having said all that, uh, we, you know we can discuss this a little bit later. about uh, what actually happened in Crimea? Because I think I have a pretty good idea how everything went down there.
1: Right. Yeah. No. Crimea is like so. So Russia just thinks they have a claim to it, as as well as it's, it's it's trying to be its own its own thing there. But uh, the, just to br- the overall uh, broad viewpoint of geopolitics what I was getting at too was that it's you know I understood at least that it was you know foreign policy amongst geographic uh, amongst nations like just the general idea of it but I just didn't think about climate topography uh, uh and you know natural resources is a thing that you often think of but you don't think of and that's why i mentioned mountains at the beginning because you don't always think of um the different terrain that that uh or the or the the limits to space that people have like well hitler wanted uh, living space for the germans right so, yeah
0: lebensraum he called it um, yeah yeah which was uh, which was living space and and that was part of his uh campaign into russia in 1941 one which was uh, operation barbarossa and, uh, the, uh, that involved Ukraine as well, uh, you know, because they had, uh, made a three-pronged attack and I believe the, uh, the Central or the South Army went in through the Ukraine and, and this is what they wanted because, of course, it was abundant with, uh, with wheat and, you know, farming and, uh, plus, you know, just as the name implies, there was a lot of living space there. Yeah, like if and I'm, so if this I'm is what you know part of. His...
1: Yeah, if I'm running a country and I'm trying to take care of my people, uh, regardless of whether I'm a good-natured leader or a evil-hearted leader, they still you still need the wheat, you need the grass, the the, the dirt you can till. Uh, you can't just live on yeah. rocks. So exactly. yeah, it's interesting the the, the the interplay, and we were talking about Russia. When I'm looking up geopolitics, there's this, the thing called the Heartland theory.
0: Yeah, mm-hmm.
1: which, which I never. Yeah, the Heartland
0: into uh, was a uh, a book or a theory that, that was put forth, I believe, by Sir uh, Halford McKinder. Yeah, and uh, that theory is is basically he who controls the Heartland controls the uh, the island, and he who controls the island controls the world. And so, what he was referring to as the island is that huge island which comprises uh, Eurasia. So yeah. basically everything from Lisbon to Vladivostok is the, the island. And that is where uh, three-quarters of the world's natural resources are. This is where, uh, you know, the energy-rich, laden Middle East, for example. And yeah, and, um, yeah, and, and so th- this is a uh, going to become very contentious in the coming years and decades because uh you know uh, russia is planning a, a uh, one belt one road or one road one belt they call it uh, the new silk loads which uh, they're basically going to build a whole lot of fast trains and again linking uh china with europe and so there are you know people who are saying, and I use the U.S. because uh, they are the world's uh, imperial power right now, and, you know, geopolitics actually works against the United States in this case, because if, if you look at North and South America, that is one pretty long island, and it's, it's plopped into uh, in between two oceans. Yeah. And so this is where China and Russia uh, are more advantageous in, in that respect. And so this is why the U.S., you know, ever since 1895, when they had their Spanish-American war in the Philippines, you know, that was the birth of, uh, of naval power in the Pacific, especially for the United States. And that is something that is still ongoing today. And so this is why you have the pivot to uh, Asia. You have the, uh, you know, the conflict in the South China Sea and in the East China Sea as well. And so... Basically, what I see, Derek, is a irresistible force meeting up with an immovable object, and uh, you know that's going to create uh, something very dire down the road.
1: What what is the is the force the West, and you're talking about the object is the pivot area, which is Russia, the island, or is it? Am I getting it confused?
0: No. Well, well, the pivot to Asia is is basically uh, is twofold. It's it's to uh, still have control over the uh, Pacific Ocean, uh, the, uh, the western, the eastern Pacific. And so the South China Sea, if you look at a map, uh, the South China Sea has a lot of uh, very small islands uh, or islets, they call it, I believe. And some of them, you know, are uh, being built up. Uh, you know, the, the uh, Chinese, for example, are building bases Extending runways, they're uh, you know looking to uh, further their uh, military reach, if if you will. Yeah. And so uh, with this, like for example, the new generation of of missiles, you know, China is has developed. I forget the name of the missile, but it it can travel at Mach 23. So that's you know 760 miles an hour at sea level times 23. That's pretty fast. And the U.S., to my knowledge, has no defense against that. And so that uh, tells me that the uh, aircraft carrier, which became uh, dominant in the Second World War, is, uh, is actually now obsolete. If, if they can hit uh, these carriers from, you know, two, 3,000 kilometers away, uh, aircraft carriers are designed to launch aircraft, and their radius is usually about maybe 500 nautical mi- miles and so they're good in close to land, but uh, the, you know, if, if these uh, missile systems, uh, new generation missile systems, come online, which they're working very hard uh, with it, along with the Russians, that you know uh, these carriers are, are going to become uh, very vulnerable, and they don't even have to be close to shore for you know for that to happen.
1: How would you describe United States, the United States and China's relationships? Uh, relationship today as nations because are are they kind of uh, some sort of geopolitical stalemate almost where they're does that make sense where they're kind of very similar in a lot of ways like the the new capitalist china and then the uh just the the large the the size of them as well as the population i mean are different sizes of populations but you know they they they, they're just such a superpower and yet there's they're not a country like uh, a smaller one of these North Koreas or something that the U.S. can push around, and you know they're they're the superpower, right? they they think in right. centuries, not decades, right?
0: Yeah, exactly. And and you have to go back to a, a book, Derek, that was written in 1996 called "The Grand Chessboard," and that's not the complete title, but that's the uh, the, uh, the main title of the book and it was written in 1996 by uh, Zbigniew Brzezinski who was a former NSA uh, National Security Advisor to uh, the uh, Carter administration in uh, the late 70s and he was also a de facto uh, NSA advisor to the Obama administration since 2008 anyways he's um, you know he's been very involved you know with uh, you know putting forth if you will uh, think tank ideas about, you know, how the U S is, is to spread their, uh, is to spread their power. And, uh, the last couple of, uh chapters of his book, he basically goes from West to East. And so he deals with China. And, uh, you know, if, if you look at it, uh, Today, you could say that, uh, you know, there's only one uh, power, uh, unipolar power, which is the United States, after the collapse of the uh, former Soviet Union in 1991. And so the U.S. Uh, basically, you know, uh, has written or Brzezinski wrote this book, which is part of uh, Paul uh, uh Project for New American Strategy, uh, which he and some other neocons had worked on as early as the 1980s. And so basically it's uh it's no different than what the Romans did uh, over 2000 years ago which is you know what imperial powers do and 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 that is to take land that is to take uh to extend the powers you know beyond your own borders and of course today in the early 21st century you know this encompasses the whole world whereas uh, with the Roman empire it was mostly the Mediterranean uh parts of Gaul parts of uh you know, what is now modern, uh, day Ger- Germany or which was called Germania back then. But the idea is, is the same. And so this works, you know, to, to keep the masses, uh, at bay. It's to keep them obedient. It's to, uh, use their resources, um, you know, to integrate their economies, you know, which you see basically with this, uh, I'm not much on on economics here, but you you have this uh, this oh, what do you call it uh, this global networking of of economies, mm-hmm. and so <clears throat> what Russia or I'm sorry what China has been doing, especially uh, you know in, since the early 1990s is is basically. They are, you know, building their own economy, and you have to look at the early 1990s to uh, to today, which is what 25 years, one generation. That their economy has, I think, it's it's tripled in size. Their their GDP is still relatively low, let's say, compared to uh, the United States and and maybe uh, uh, Britain, for example, but. What they have done is uh, you know the Chinese uh, they they buy stocks or bonds they they reinvest it and I'm not sure like I like I said derek i'm I'm not really uh, up on economics here but they have basically you know uh, used other countries rather than invading them for example, they will do an economic cooperation thing with them so let's say they want to have a high-speed train that goes through uh, Kazakhstan, for example. Well, that's going to employ a lot of workers in Kazakhstan. They're going to get benefits from the uh, money that is made, you know, from the rail system. And so this is what is is really being successful, you know, for uh, for the Chinese to do. And it also has to be noted that, you know, China holds, I believe it's $4 trillion of American debt, Today, and if they dumped that tomorrow, you know, that would implode the uh, U.S. economy, but, but they're not going to do that for whatever reasons, but they hold a lot of debt. And yeah. so it's, it's very interesting that, <clears throat> you know, if, if the U.S. tries to, uh, uh, what Brzezinski calls regional powers, and that's like Russia, and that's like China today, Iran to a lesser extent, in in the Middle East, Uh, but these regional powers, uh, Brzezinski says, you may cooperate with us, but thou shalt not compete with us, (laughs) or try and get bigger than us, and so this is the conflicts we see going on in the world today.
1: So it's like America has always set out to be the top dog in the world, ever since they sort of... Well, what's weird to me is like the transition from when when people got on boats and and went across oceans but didn't actually have the cartography uh, of the whole world yet. Like, and now we can see the whole map. And so strategy is different because you're looking at all the different uh, disadvantages and advantages of um, various uh, geographic areas. And so it's like, yeah, it's it's crazy that um, just the point we're at now... You know, everybody's got nukes and we're all like not pressing the buttons and we're all just kind of trying to keep our economy steady. But the, the banking systems are failing and the, the people are yeah. artificially deflating their currencies. And but who who owns the debt? And the, the, the there's debt like it's like this system is beyond every individual, yet collectively we're living through it and, and managing. It. It's like economies are system and, and entities to themselves almost, right?
0: Yeah, well they are. And and the thing was, you know, back since the 15th century and uh forget the name of the fellow, but uh the name may come to me here but but he said that uh civilizations and you know, we're we're talking about civilizations let's say back in the 15th century which was based on mercantile shipping, uh, you know, goods, commodities, etc. um that started, you know, after the Dark Ages, you know, Renaissance Italy. Uh, it spread uh, into uh, Europe proper. And so basically, you know, money was made on on, sh- on commodities, on trade, merchants, you know, for example. Um, physical stuff. Yeah, physical stuff, exactly. And And this is what we don't have today. We don't have that tangible... Thing to uh, to barter with almost, and so you go from uh, this mercantile uh, uh, commercialization. You go into the industrial age, where you know you have things now being mass produced for the very first time, and so this cuts down cost on labor. You don't have to hire as many people, for example, and so uh, that you know started roughly around 1850 and you know we're just coming to the end of that era now and so uh, the other era which started i want to say about 10 15 years ago is that um from the industrial age you have gone to the information age or the electronic age where you have virtual uh virtual coins like um what's that bitcoin. uh what's it called sorry
1: bitcoin or also kanye west oh, yeah. has his own coin Money, yeah, yeah, the
0: Bitcoin exactly. And so this is money uh making money out of out of nothing really. It's it's virtual money making money. Yep. And so this is what you see with hedge funds. Uh this is what you see with uh you know uh, uh risk uh stocks uh investing or speculating on these stocks. And so they're making a lot of money in a very short period of time. And also with the computers now, let's say for the uh, New York Stock Exchange, you don't have people, you know, holding up little signs saying buy this, buy that. Uh, What they have is they have supercomputers who are doing the buying and the selling, and this has gone down to billions of a second. Okay, so a matter of, uh, let's say, oh, I don't know, a quarter of a second can mean, you know, making a lot of money or losing a lot of money. So, you know, this is where the information or technology is, uh, it seems to be out of our hands, and yet the model or the economic model that they use for Wall Street seems to uh, seems to work well so far.
1: Well, yeah, like we haven't hit that, uh, I mean, we had the 08 uh, crash, and then a lot of economists will say that another big crash is coming. And yeah. as far as that... Uh, you know, it's interesting. They actually had to put, right? Re- I mean, they put regulations on how f- how fast the data can travel because of the distance of some of these. Um, I don't know what you call them, whatever centers are connected to the stock exchange. Right. You know, the computer systems. There's, act- there's actually been that's something that they regulate. They'll say, you know. Yeah. Yeah, but uh, yeah, and there's always ways to to. Yeah, it's it's above uh, my head as well. All that stuff, but. Uh, Yeah, it's and then what's next? Because we're talking about the virtual economies and and, uh, due to the age of uh, the information age, and they say what's coming next is the future might either be one of two things: it will be a bunch of rich people at the top on permanent vacation, and then ninety percent of us literally in ghettos. Yeah, unless we find some way of harmonizing. And using technology to to sort of do all the work, like robots or whatever you can envision, and then the, and then we we all kind of have a utopian uh, permanent vacation. And I don't know what's what's. <laughs> the yeah, the
0: well, end. you know, there's these uh, dystopian movies uh, that have come out in recent years. One of them was called Elysium. Oh yeah. Uh, with um, uh, Matt uh, uh, oh, Matt Damon, right? Matt Damon. That's right. And so there's an orbiting space station, and this is where the 0.001 elite lives. And the rest of humanity is, uh, you know, stuck on Earth. And I believe it revolves around uh, 21st mid 21st century Los Angeles, where, uh, you know, people uh, who live in the space station they have all the medical needs. They have all the the technology necessary to live a real good life and yet the overburgeoning populations on the earth below you know are starving Uh, they have uh, very low menial jobs and you know I I can see this kind of future uh, going in this direction one day because everything you know you look at the the rise of, of the human species and civilizations everything you know whether it's knowingly Uh, done or not, but, but everything appears to be in a caste system. So you have your blue collar workers, you have your white collar workers, you have your, uh, technicians, you have your professionals, you have, you know, and so this has always been, uh, you know, uh, what happened in, in the United States, for example, especially after the Second World War, was you had this burgeoning middle class of blue collar workers who sustained the economy and, you know, used uh, real valuables, you know, to exchange or to make money, for example. You know, Detroit built the best cars in the world. Um, you know, you had steel production in Pittsburgh and some of these other cities in, in the Midwest. And, uh, you know, all of that has been outsourced in recent years. Of course, you know, these car plants are moving to Mexico. They're moving to uh, the Philippines. They're moving elsewhere. And so the idea behind that, I believe, is why do I have to pay somebody $20 an hour in the United States with a union when I can get the same job done over in the Philippines for $5 an hour?
1: Yeah,
0: yeah, and, and, you know, this evaporating or shrinking middle class in the United States is, is going to leave, you know, what we said at, at the beginning is, is you're going to have this very small percentage, and I say, yeah, basically the uh, you know this five to six hundred year um, uh, it started in in the West, uh, where Columbus set sail to America, for example, where uh, you know Watts and the steam engine, the railroad. And all of uh, technology uh, came from the 15th century, and, of course, it uh, evolved over time. But all of those innovations, uh, airplane travel by the Wright brothers, et cetera, et cetera, all, all of that is, is now coming to a close. And so what we don't know is, is uh, the world is not coming to an end, but rather uh... there's going to be a new kid on the block if you will and and this is the rise of uh... of, of asia in, in the twenty first century and this i believe is is what the west and particularly the united states uh... really fears because it's 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 like a uh... a drug addict uh... you know looking for their next fix you know you become addicted to this way of life you become addicted to oil you become addicted to energy and if there's alternative ways uh, of producing energy, which doesn't cost uh, $53 a barrel, for example, it's going to put a lot of people out of business, a lot of companies out of business, and so they're going to hold on to that lifestyle or that addictive way of life, which we have had, you know, probably for the last 250 years, and it's going to be replaced by something else. And of course, human nature being what it is, we do not like... Change, you know, we, we resist change as much as possible, you know, rather than integrate, uh, change the word from I want this to uh, we should do this instead. So you change I to we, you know, and and this seems to be the way and I'm not really up on on the uh, Chinese policy, uh, you know, their politics, for example, or, you know, even their end game, what they hope to produce. But they seem to be working more uh, collectively with other nations right now, uh, rather than the United States, which is Mao said in uh, 1968 during the Chinese Revolution, he said power comes at the end of a, at the end of a gun. Yeah. and so this is what I believe what we see today with uh, you know drone strikes in Yemen, in Somalia, in Afghanistan, you know the tribal regions between uh, Afghanistan Pakistan, for example and so they're trying to hold on to uh... this this uh... philosophy which you know started in eighteen ninety five in uh... in the philippines and you know ever since the american revolution the u s has done nothing but expand okay so they went westward and uh... you know you had the indian wars of the uh, nineteen six or the eighteen sixties uh, shortly after the civil war and that lasted till uh, Wounded Knee, South or North Dakota, in, uh, I believe it was 1898, 1899. Sitting Is that Sitting Bull? Uh, no, it, it, it wasn't Sitting Bull. Uh, I want to say Red Cloud, but I, I may be wrong on that name as well. Oh, okay. But a fellow by the name of Morris Berman uh, wrote a, a real good book in uh, 2004. And... Uh, it was called Dark Ages America, the final phase of uh, empire, and in it he writes, uh, you know, that there is a dark age approaching, and you know he talks about expansion in in his book that the U.S. ever since its inception in 1776, uh, you know, has done nothing but expand, and so it today it it, it seeks to take over or you know encompass the uh, globe if you will and it is yeah exactly and uh you know Morris Berman is uh he's he's a cultural uh, historian i believe and i i think he's uh, ex-military himself but you know he he basically believes that you know the united states has uh you know tried to hold on to this uh this way of life you know that they're almost trapped in yesterday you know like there was three real uh, prosperous decades, uh, you know, at the end of the Second World War, 1950s, 1960s, despite the revolutions and uh, Woodstock and everything else yeah. in the 1970s. And so, you know, that time is gone now, and, and it's gone for good. And so what the Americans, I perceive them, uh, have a, a real difficult time of is, is, is adapting. And uh, my argument from uh, Darwin's theory of evolution is not survival of the fittest, but survival of the organism that best adapts to its environment. Yeah. You know, and that's not to say that genes or, you know, you, you, you still have to be strong. People who are uh, texting and walk off the face of a cliff, you know, uh, you know those are experiments uh, that have gone wrong with uh, with Darwin, and those people who step off the cliffs will never pass on their genes. No,
1: they won't. <laughs> yeah, they'll just no, fall off cliffs, and uh, that's the end of them.
0: Yeah, yeah, exactly. And and so you see this, you know, you see it, unfortunately, on, you know, some videos, you know, I think it's called the Darwin Awards, you know, people uh, getting themselves killed in in the weirdest possible ways. Yeah. But, but no, basically, I, I, I think this is where... <clears throat> this is where... Um, China and the East uh, are basically—they uh, know that in in order for a, uh, an organism to survive, it it, it has to uh, survive collectively, okay? And so it, it it has to cooperate, and it has to uh, you know if if there's any conflicts along the way, um, then you resolve those internally, or you know you you come up with a strategy so th- so that. It doesn't happen again, but um, in my lifetime, which is uh, approaching six decades now, uh, change, especially in the last uh, 10, 15 years, is is exponential. It is just amazing that I pull my computer out of my box, Mm -hmm. and uh, six months later, it's obsolete.
1: Yeah. Well, unless Alex uh, builds it for you. Alex could build a computer that could last longer than six months, I'm sure.
0: Oh exactly and also if 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 you could look at a uh at a flat board sideways or or just looking at it straight on and if you go back let's say to uh the late uh or let's say the early uh, Neolithic period of about seven ten thousand 10,000 years ago when when agriculture first came on the scene you have almost a parallel line between technology uh above and the emotional, uh, growth of, of a human being, which, which roughly paralleled for about the first, uh, I want to say till 1950. And then the emotional, uh, growth, uh, you know, went up a little bit, not much over the past 12,000 years, but it did go up a little bit. But you look at the other line above it, which is the uh, technological line, and it's almost vertical now. It's going straight up, so the distance between the tip of the technological line and the tip of the uh, of the uh, emotional line of a human being is is quite large. And so, when you have people who invent uh, a bombs or nuclear devices, and uh, you know they get dissed or missed at somebody, you know rather than uh, talking rationally through it, like the Russians and the Americans did uh, during detente in the 1980s. Uh, you know, at least you had diplomacy. People were sitting around talking about things. People don't do this anymore, especially in the West. Right. Lavrov, Putin, and company, you know, have wanted a, uh, a political uh, or a peaceful settlement through uh, through political means. And the U.S. doesn't want to seem to separate uh, their moderates from the uh, so-called uh, jihadists, and so this is a real sticking point. And you know, we can go right into Syria here because, um, you know, what we see again is, um, you know, the Russia of today is 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 nothing like the Russia of. Uh, or the Soviet Union of 1992 and then followed by roughly about eight or nine years of uh, Boris Yeltsin and, and his corrupt group, you know, who, uh, you know, tried to take everything, made the oligarchs even more richer, et cetera, et cetera. And they basically, when Putin came to power in 1999, you know, he basically put his foot down on all of this. And so, you know, he, he put an end, uh, to the black market, uh, the war in, in Chechnya, in in the capital of Grozny, for example, uh, you know he uh, put an end to that. You know he even uh, took out a few journalists, for heaven's sake. Oh yeah. You know, and so you know they still talk about that today that that Putin had these journalists murdered. But if you look at their uh, their mainstream media. Let's say in the late 1990s, compared to the mainstream media you see today with CNN, with Fox News, and a few of these others, you know, these people don't deserve to, uh, you know, to be putting forth this. Um, oh I, I don't even know what to call it. It's it's Aurelian and like it the narrative is uh, that, that's
1: put forth just the general.
0: Yeah, well, it's it's basically if if you read uh, George Orwell's 1984, it's war is peace, and uh, you know freedom is slavery, and two plus two is five. Yeah, and so this is what the media is 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 constantly driving home to us uh, day in and day out. You know, shortly after the uh, 9/11 attacks in New York City in September of 2001. You had the word terror, terrorism, terrorist. It was flashed on the screens it like you heard the word over and over and over again. Yeah. And I've taken a couple of psychology classes over uh, my years at the university. And if you say something enough times over and over again, it, it becomes a truth. And so it becomes a meme as well in that uh, if you're born in uh, 2001, then you your belief from very early on is that uh, Muslims are terrorists and anybody with you know, with dark skin, for example, is not to be trusted.
1: Which, yeah, and so I blame
0: that on the media, the propaganda that comes out day after day. Yeah. You know, you watch Hillary Clinton and uh, Donald Trump, you yeah. know, the presidential elections. I might as well read an Archie and Jughead <laughs> comment. Really? Yeah,
1: no, and it's interesting that uh, the one, th- I mean... The cl- the clear thing that he says, which which makes sense over what she says, is that he at least uh, it's they call it the Voldemort effect, where which is a reference to Harry Potter that you weren't supposed to say this one guy's name, and this, you know the, the Obama administration and, and the Democrats won't say the the words Islamic fundamentalist ter- terrorism, whereas yeah. Donald Trump does, and I think uh, Putin obviously working with. Uh, uh, Assad and and whatnot in Syria is like, it seems like he's, although he's, we're talking about his, you know, strong footedness and all that. And his sort of demeanor is like very strong and like, uh, he's working with uh, that guy. And that's a collaborative thing. Kind of like what we were talking about, about China in a different way. But, but the fact that we are arming groups that we just, and I say we as uh, we're not really, them, but the United States, the arming people that who knows what their real motives are and what the I, why, why is America so opposed to Assad? Is it just because he used chemical weapons on his people?
0: No, absolutely not. But, but, but this is the narrative uh, that uh, they want the masses to believe. OK, what happened was in 2009, there was a uh, the country of Qatar, uh, which is uh, on the peninsula there next to Saudi Arabia wanted to ship the liquid natural gas uh as a uh, you know as a, a competitor for example with Gazprom which is uh, based in Russia and so what they did was uh this pipeline was going to run through Saudi Arabia it was going to run through Jordan through Syria through Turkey and then on into Europe and Bashar al-Assad said to them no uh we're not going to permit you to uh, to build a pipeline through our country, and so that uh, the Gulf Cooperation Council states or the countries in that region, Bahrain, uh, Qatar, Saudi Arabia, Kuwait, um, all of them you know basically built this huge resentment a year later, Iran, uh, offers to, uh, build a similar pipeline, uh, liquid natural gas from their, uh, Pars field, which is, uh, has the world's greatest deposit of, of natural gas. And they were gonna run it through Iraq, through Syria, through, uh, Turkey, and then into, uh, and into, uh, Europe. And so, uh, Bashar al-Assad said yes, uh, they agreed to that. Now, it, it gets a little bit more complicated here because of the, uh, The Sunni-Shia rift that has been going on since the death of the Prophet Muhammad in 632 A.D. I believe, where uh, the Prophet Muhammad did not leave a direct descendant, and so when his father-in-law died, uh, the question became, well, who is uh, who has the right to uh, to succeed along, you know, the Prophet Muhammad, and so. You had the birth of, uh, Sunni and Shia, and so I believe, I may have this backwards, but the Shia believe that, uh, you know, the next, uh, person elected, you know, to be the, uh, the prophet, for example, uh, has to, uh, be elected, you know, for their rational thinking, for their, uh, you know, basically, the ability to make decisions, uh, blah, blah, blah. And so the Sunni said, no, it, it needs to be, you know, a bloodline or, you know, somebody in succession, whether it's an in-law or somebody else. And so they've actually had this rift going on, you know, since uh, the 7th century AD. And
1: they did choose successors, right? They, did, they each have their, their own that they trace it back to, right?
0: Yes, exactly. And so what you have now is what is called the Shia Crescent, and the Shia crescent runs basically from uh, Lebanon through Syria and uh through uh parts of iraq uh, Iraq is uh sixty percent uh, Shia for example and into Iran which is over ninety percent Shia so you have this this crescent and the rest of the Sunni countries Saudi Arabia Qatar Bahrain and a few of these others um, you know don't want them to have this uh so much power and so they want to uh you know, put a break in, into this uh, Shia crescent. And Syria is is a religious way of doing that. Like, if, if you're talking about religious wars or, or religious uh, political thought, then that is where you break the back of the Shia crescent is, is through Syria. Now, the other reasons why they want to take out Syria is because um, there several other reasons as well one of them is is uh, the old soviet union uh didn't have many allies in the middle east but when uh the soviet union fell and the new russian federation you know came to be they still kept syria and syria still wanted to be an ally of of the russians uh iran is is uh, very uh closely allied to syria for example as as well as as lebanon and the Hezbollah party, which is a democratically elected opposition group in the House in Lebanon. And uh, they are not a terrorist group, except if the Israelis say so and the rest of the world says so. And they are. What what Hezbollah has done, it was created in 1982 when the uh, Israelis had invaded uh, southern Lebanon. Um, And that is where you had... uh, the birth of Hezbollah, which was a resistance group to uh, thwart off any more advances by the Israeli army. And so uh, Hezbollah, basically, they build roads, they build hospitals. I mean, they do good things, these people. So Brookings Institute, which is a think tank in the United States, 2009, comes out with a paper in, uh, in June of 2009. And it basically describes, anybody can look this up uh... it basically describes how to dismantle syria and lo and behold when the arab spring or the uh... arab uprising happened uh... in two thousand and eleven when it reached syria this is when the u.s. and the west uh... found a way uh... to uh... to bring down assad and assad of course his father hafez assad was a brutal dictator was responsible for the murder of uh tens of thousands of their own people but you have to understand in these type of of um... these people are not ready for democracy yet you know they're roughly about two hundred years behind you know europe finds democracy in in the late eighteenth century early nineteenth century and so when george w bush says uh... you know we want to free the people and give them democracy and they're saying on the other hand we are not ready for democracy, leave us alone. And right. so this is, yeah, this is the um, the frontispiece that they use, you know, or uh, uh, Samantha Power's uh, ROE, which is Responsibility, or ROP, uh, Responsibility to Protect, what they did in Libya in 2011, which was basically, uh, you know, take one of the more stable governments in on the African continent Libya had 3% of the world's oil. Muammar Gaddafi despite being a dictator was in power for 42 years. Uh he basically built up Benghazi and Tripoli, made it modern. There was free education, there was free uh uh health care and the same with Iraq under Saddam Hussein. Yeah, but it still
1: wasn't good. It wasn't good education and they also hung people in schools and the 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 health care wasn't, you know, it was some of the things were free in the but it was still wasn't, like you said, he was a brutal dictator. Yeah, right?
0: uh, yeah absolutely. And, and part of the reason for that is, is because um, under, the, uh, ru- or under Saddam Hussein, for example, and his Ba'athist party, which came to power in 1968, and it's much like uh, Joseph Tito of uh, the former Yugoslavia shortly after the Second World War, where you had Croats, Muslims, Christians, all living together in a very tight space. And so when uh, the Sykes-Picot Accord is uh, drawn up in 1916, uh, during the First World War or the Great War, you have these British and French diplomats or uh, politicians carving out little niches in in the Middle East uh, without taking into consideration ethnic, uh, cultural, uh, you know, all of these things. And, And so they just put everybody inside a dotted line yeah. and this is why you have so much conflict and so this is why you have these dictators coming to power ruling with an iron fist because it was the only way of of keeping the masses from from uh... killing each other and so yeah people were put in prisons people were uh, never seen again et etc cetera, etc cetera, yeah. but it worked and it worked in in yugoslavia it worked in syria before uh, Bashar al-Assad's time, even though, uh, you know, the term dictator it could be still applied to him. Um, but the thing was, and what a lot of people miss, is Syria hasn't threatened anybody. And under the UN Charter number 5, I believe, uh, that when you go to war against a country, it, it has to be because of... Uh, that your nation itself is threatened directly, or your interests are threatened, and so you could make a, a a real broad argument. Well, our interests are oil or energy, and so we need to sustain our way of life. For example, so these people have to go. So,
1: did the, and, the, do the uh, American, so the, do the American government even want, even really want the war in Syria to end? Like, why? People, everyone's asking, why can't we just defeat ISIS and and if you look at the map of the live war map, you could see ISIS is meandering all throughout the, the north of Iraq. And they're also have like 50% yeah. of the, of the land in Syria, which is, you know, they're very close to Lebanon. They're, uh, yeah. getting close to Jordan as well. And they're all the way up to, to Turkey as well. They're just like a spider and you got all these different forces dealing with them. But they, like you said, uh, you know, Bashar, uh, al-Assad kind of had this somewhat stable I'm just kind of guessing, I mean it was somewhat stable uh, compared to what's going on
0: now Absolutely, and and the thing that has to be remembered is there's about 15 different religious sects in uh, in Syria and the Alawites, uh, which he is a part of, comprises uh, a very small minority I believe it's around 10% of the population hmm. but uh, the Alawites are... Um, a branch of of, of Shia uh, Islam, and so uh, basically, what he did was uh, have all these people basically living in harmony. And you know, there was an independent journalist by the name of Vanessa Beely who just recently returned from Aleppo. And uh, you know what what she says and what you hear on mainstream media is is like a black knight to white bishop. It's it's completely uh, the opposite and talking to ordinary Syrians not only in Aleppo but elsewhere in the country is that these people say first and foremost that we are Syrians and we are fighting to save our country mm-hmm. and you know Bashar al-Assad could have uh left the country taken all his loot and uh you know left everybody else to the wolves but he didn't and who, who did he gas know, was it
1: Kurds or no was it that- who did I'm sorry.
0: Did, say that again.
1: Who did he use chemical weapons on? What sect was was it? Was it a ethnic oh, group?
0: No, uh, Assad never. <clears throat> excuse me. Assad never used chemical weapons on anybody. Chemical weapons were stockpiled as a uh, as a very poor uh, response to nuclear weapons uh, based in Turkey. Oh, uh, so they
1: just said, "Oh, he has them," etc., cetera, etc. Cetera.
0: Yeah, the narrative had to say that he was using this on his own people, which these claims, and any claim that uh, anybody from the uh, Joint Chiefs of Staff, Joseph Dunford to Ash Carter to Obama, uh, they, they, they have a lot of uh, information, but they're never, never backed up with facts. And, and the thing that I'm reminded of is uh, shortly after that Malaysian uh, Air 17 flight was shot down, over the northeast corner of Ukraine back in July of 2014. uh, Russia came out and released its uh, military radar tapes two, three days after the fact. The Americans, of course, have satellite imagery all over the world. They never released anything. And I looked at these tapes, and, uh, I mean, I was an air traffic controller for 32 years. I know what a radar target looks like. I know if it was doctored, if if anything was amiss. And nothing was, was out of the ordinary with this tape there was a um, uh, what is called a prime target. And a prime target is uh, is something that a radar does not interrogate, uh, like with the transponder on the aircraft. And so it's a unique signature to that flight, which is attached to that flight plan. So uh, Malaysian Air 17 might uh, show up as MH17, the aircraft type and the ground speed. And they had all of that uh... on this radar uh... on this radar tape which the russians released it's about twenty four minutes long and uh... this prime target uh... appeared about three nautical miles away from uh, this malaysian air flight and it did uh... you lost it on one sweep two sweeps and then it showed up again it was lost and then uh... after the plane went down in and, and you can see the uh... the altitude display uh... You know, he's descending very fast, and so this prime target just leaves the area. And so, this is all speculation, but um, I do not believe it was a, a BUK or a Buk missile system that the Russians had uh, taken down and given to the uh, militias in Donbass or Luhansk, for example. And so, this was very tragic that they wasted 298 lives to impose sanctions against the country.
1: Um, So this, uh, the Gouda chemical attack in Syria, that was in 2013, which is what they say, what the U.S. says, uh, the U.N. investigation stated that it was uh, Assad because of the fact that it they must have had access to the stockpile of chemical weapons that the military had as well as expertise and equipment necessary to manipulate the weapons but the the, the russia said it was the opposition and, and stated it was a false flag operation to yeah
0: it. basically what uh, there, there was two independent uh, british uh, ex, uh... military individuals who uh... they actually did a lot of math on this and geometry and uh where the missiles originated from uh... the syrian army at this time is located i believe if my memory serves me correct they're more than nine kilometers away uh, the missiles were fired from the northern end of uh... of uh... east ghouta and slightly to the west at a distance of about two to three miles and uh... syrian intelligence and uh, russian intelligence said that the only people in that area were, were various militias and so they, they did some uh, trajectories with, with these things, they even showed how they test fired them and they, they basically go up in a parabolic arc and they come back down again and it's, you know, they're fitted to the end of a very long uh, mortar and uh, fired that way but there was no direct evidence linking the Syrian Arab army with, with this chemical attack And they Uh, attacked.
1: Who did they attack? The Syrian opposition. It was called. What is the what was the opposition? Is this just the moderate,
0: the rebels? Yeah, the the rebels, whatever you want to call them. um, The thing that has to be noted uh, is, and even the West is is very oblivious to this. The Syrian conflict. I don't even call it a civil war. It may have started off as a civil war. Mm -hmm. uh, That there was a legitimate uh, free Syrian army uh but the free syrian army did not have a very uh tenable uh logistics or or even an infrastructure you know even at the political level where they could say this guy is is going to be the uh so and so or president of the free syrian army or top general whatever you want to call it yeah and um their numbers were uh are still unknown but it wasn't very big but what had happened was uh, particularly after two thousand and twelve when these militias uh... foreign militias started coming in from uh, all over the free syrian army basically did one of two things they uh... went back to the uh... to the regular government the syrian arab army or they joined uh... these other militias and so by the time two thousand and fourteen rolls around the new narrative is the so called uh, moderate opposition. Uh they do not exist. They they are uh part of the narrative which uh allows the US to fund, to train, to uh supply weapons to uh to these um, different opposition groups. And as one guy, you know, uh I thought it was quite funny despite the uh, the morbid humor of it. But uh, basically, the difference between a moderate rebel and a jihadist is one chops heads off and the other one doesn't. Yeah. And so basically, this is what it, it boils down to. The other thing, you know, truths were revealed uh, shortly after the Russian uh, aerospace force uh, came into uh, Syria in September of 2015, and they really, really started kicking ass. And the Americans had been... Supposedly, been uh, bombing ISIS since uh, September of the year before in two thousand and fourteen. They were
1: just bombing sandcastles. It turned out.
0: Yeah, exactly, exactly. And so here's a farmhouse over here with three goats, two chickens. Let's take these guys out. And the other thing, you know, the Russians always release their video camera of uh, you know the uh, infrastructures that they that they attack. And I never saw anything released by the Department of Defense. Uh, you know or, you know, I don't watch much mainstream television, of course, but they didn't, I did not see a lot of, uh, you know, evidence that the U.S. was serious or intent on, on uh, bombing ISIS or, or taking them out. And so uh, it leads me to believe today the breakdown of this uh, second um, ceasefire, which was supposed to go in effect for seven days, um basically what the americans fail to do is to separate their moderates from the uh from the actual uh uh jihadists and so yeah how do they do that how do they say
1: they're how, how do they even explain that they're doing that i don't understand that part
0: yeah well well this is again something that is uh you know we need a ceasefire and and here are my own personal thoughts on the ceasefire they they had two of them they had one back in february mm-hmm. which lasted i believe 48 hours and this other one which was supposed to last a week but what this is, is is simply uh taking a breather okay and and it works for both sides of course the Syrian army can rest and uh recoup but it it actually benefits the uh, the uh the jihadist militias because uh they were getting their asses kicked and they were getting their asses kicked back in February. And, uh, you know, this is when Kerry announces, oh, we need a ceasefire, we need a ceasefire. And so basically what it does is it allows, you know, and I'll use Aleppo for an example. Eastern Aleppo is um, reduced to about 250,000 people. And most of those people are uh, are jihadists and their families. And it's people who are trapped, cannot get away um, you know, or who couldn't get out in time, it has to be remembered. And, and the Western media never said a word about this. But in 2012, uh, the government forces still occupy the western part of Aleppo, and 600,000 people were allowed to, uh, to come into western Aleppo. And so this doesn't sound to me like uh, a president who is killing his own people. It just doesn't make it just doesn't make sense. And uh, if you, if you watch uh, an interview that Bashar al-Assad had with uh, with the Associated Press, I think back in uh, mid September, sometime, you know, he's trying to uh, you know get humanitarian aid, you know, and the ceasefires that were agreed to by the U.S. and and Russia was uh, in part also to allow these humanitarian corridors to get supplies in and out yeah. and this is what Assad said he was trying to do and of course that is never mentioned and uh, basically what you have uh, today is um, I look at a, uh, at a map and I encourage anybody to go to uh, southfront.org and I believe it's made in Russia but they have some very good stories and they have daily updates on what's going on in Syria Mm-hmm. And you look at a map of Aleppo, and, you know, where the green is, this is where the, it's it's rebel-controlled areas. It's getting smaller by the day. And this is what the U.S. is, uh, this is what all the bluster is all about with the generals, with, uh, you know, with Ashton Carter. And, you know, the belligerents, uh, you know, Samantha Power walking out of the U.N. when Vitaly Chirkin made his speech uh, there uh, at the United Nations Security Council, uh, you know, and shortly after that, after the failure of the ceasefire, and she's walking out like uh, a kid who's in kindergarten, who's somebody stolen her Barbie doll, and she just has a hissy fit and walks out. Yeah. You know, that is not a diplomat to me. No. You know, so it's nobody wants to talk. Uh, you know. Well, isn't
1: that the issue? And then, and then uh, I this could be another hour when you said uh, don't open up the can of worms that is Israel. Uh, but uh, isn't that the, the? it's these people who can't talk, because, I don't know, it's just like, it just seems these conflicts are, if they're not endless, they're at least ever changing, and they're just transmogrifying into other conflicts, and that's, they just it just it doesn't seem like there's an end in sight.
0: No, there isn't, and, and the thing is, in Philip of Macedon, uh, who was uh, a brilliant, um, uh, he was the father of Alexander the Great. And if you ever wanted to know where Alexander got his name from, my I son... I knew it. It was from Alexander the Great. I knew it. Uh, but his father, Philip of Macedon, I mean, I think he was a better uh, leader, tactician, politician than than Alexander was. But having said that... Um, you know Philip of Macedon. Uh, you know, in places like uh, Thrace and uh, other parts of central uh, Egypt, or I'm sorry, central Greece. Uh, what he did was uh, to defeat his enemies. He would cause instability within those uh, within, within those kingdoms or, or those city-states. And so, when when you have uh, chaos reigning supreme, instability. Uh, they cannot, you know, get strong again, uh, they cannot get strong economically, militarily, and so they are no longer a threat to you. And and this is what Philip used quite well. And so Alexander, you know, used it to a certain extent as well, although he was more interested in, uh, you know, finding uh, Shangri-La maybe in India or something, I don't know, but 12 uh, years, you know, doing a thing is not very good for the morale of his troops people want to go home (laughs) yeah
1: it seems like uh, nobody can be a nice guy as far as world leaders go and history goes like you have to be somewhat aggressive in your nature and the way you look at your people and if when you the way you look at longevity you can't just sit around and and just twiddle your thumbs or just you know i don't know
0: yeah, he who hesitates is lost or, uh, you know, is, is killed, whatever you want to use. But you're absolutely right. I mean, uh, when when you're a politician, you know, uh, you can't be a nice guy because you're, you're going to be thrown under the bus. And, you know, you have to, you know, when you make a claim that uh, I am the world's hegemon, you know, and that... Uh, we are the indispensable ones. We are the, uh, you know, this, it just smacks of hubris. But, I mean, hubris is, is, is what builds empires. Mm-hmm. It's, it's what builds dynasties. It's what builds civilizations. Yeah. And so, you know, I don't know if we got that from the chimpanzees when we all split from a common ancestor six million years ago. But next to us, we're six times more likely to kill our own species uh, than other animals. Uh, whales, for example, it's never been, uh, shown that, uh, whales kill other whales. Goats do not kill other goats. Uh, I see our young kitten here from time to time take a nip at, uh, Lucy, <laughs> you know, the older one, but, you know, they make up and purr and have a nice little sleep together. But human beings will hold on to resentments for, for centuries. And so this <laughs> is, Morris Berman was, uh, uh, the fellow I was talking about earlier in Dark Ages America, uh, the other fellow's name was Morris as well, but he talks about these five, six hundred year cycles where, uh, you know, this Anglo-Saxon, and I'll throw in Zionist, uh, way of life is, is coming to an end. And so uh, when you're faced with... Uh, Mort- you know, mortality, that this is going to end, yeah. then you are going to do everything in, in your power to fight back, to stay alive. Yeah. Whereas your thinking has to change. If only the U.S., you know, after the fall of the Soviet Union, they were in the enviable position of becoming, yes, the, uh, the sole superpower, but what they could have done back then was made themselves even richer than they were in the 40s and 50s. Uh, you know by collectively you know getting these economies uh, back up, uh, you know especially with uh, Japan and uh, Germany after the end of the second world War, they could have done something similar with Russia, but Russia has traditionally always been seen as a threat uh, and
1: uh, I mean look at Japan and Germany today, right? yeah, I mean they all have everybody has their their issues uh, but generally look at the stability of those two. Two nations and the kind of ingenuity that's come come out of them since since them being the axis in World War II. It's kind of interesting. Yeah,
0: absolutely. And you know, Germany, eighty million people. You know, is the strongest uh, country in the EU and probably the strongest country. uh, You know, I think it's even more stronger than than the UK, for example. But um, they also recycle
1: the the most out of uh, many nations. They are there things like that too.
0: (laughs) Oh yeah, absolutely. But, you know, it's um, the thing is, rather than looking at it from the perspective that our way of life is ending, they should look at it simply as our way of life is changing. You know, it's it's not the end of the world, but it can be the end of the world if people keep doing stupid, silly shit and, uh, you know, push the bear back into a corner and the bear is going to fight back uh, at some point if you keep poking the stick at it.
1: Yeah, and, and the bear, uh, and they get, that's the the pivot bear. I'm going to call it the pivot bear from now on. So,
0: yeah, I like that the pivot bear exactly. And you know, um, Russia, if 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 they went, let's let's just uh, throw the nuclear option out just for a minute. But if the uh, Russian military and the American military went head to head in a conventional war, Russia would be licked in about three weeks because the U.S. still has the world's strongest military. They still have the best toys, but you look at the Russians, uh, they're up and coming, and again, this goes back to uh, uh, Zbigniew Brzezinski's uh, concern when he wrote the Grand Chessboard in 1996, Mm -hmm. that uh, they feel that the Russians are are getting too big and that they may become uh, too much of an influence. During times of of crisis, conflicts, etc., you know, people are going to rally around their leader. You know, whether it's a good leader or a bad leader, doesn't matter. But uh, yeah, what else are they going
1: day. to do? That's all they know.
0: Yeah, exactly. And and the thing is, you know, they're basically, uh, you know, countries, you know, are just a few decades out of the Stone Age or you know the medieval times. And but for heaven's sake, you know, if if they want to. Uh, do intertribal genocide blah 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 you know it's 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 a very difficult thing to say but it's not your business and your business is is protecting your own nation your your own interests Um, you know the Marines uh, the US Marine Corps has a a a dictum which states uh, something to the effect that you know I pledge to defend Uh, our country against enemies foreign and domestic or words to that effect and so but the thing is uh, saddam hussein never had weapons of mass destruction but it was a narrative built uh... because they needed a pretext to uh... you know to bomb the hell out of uh... out of baghdad and the rest of the country and what a lot of people don't realize today is never mentioned in the Western media, but uh, the Syrian people and its government are under sanctions and have been since 2011. And these sanctions are the same type of sanctions that were imposed on uh, on Saddam Hussein and Iraq in, uh, uh, since the Gulf War, the first Gulf War in 1991. Mm-hmm. And it lasted almost 12 years when uh, George W. Bush came in 2003. And what is, uh, you know, there was was an interview with uh, the former uh, U.N. uh, diplomat uh, to the United States government, uh, Madeleine Albright, and so the the interviewer back then, uh, and they don't, by the way, dare ask these kind of questions today on television, but she asked her, she said, did you know that 500,000, there have been reports up to 500,000 Iraqi children have died as a result of these sanctions. And in her answer, her reply was uh, words to the effect, uh, that's uh, a small price uh, that we have to pay for freedom. And I'm going, where did you come up with that?
1: Yeah, freedom. You this know? word freedom, it's just like terrorist. It's just a word that they throw around. Yeah, it,
0: it, 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 it's a word that is used interchangeably with every other thing. It can be morphed into this, or mm-hmm. it can be stretched into that uh you know and it's this is not what it is at all it's it's basically hostile aggression it's it's no different than uh you know what their great 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 grandfathers did when they were going west yeah. towards uh, california and there was uh you know some indigenous populations in the way and the black hills and the dakotas uh they moved them into this area uh, and built a huge reservation, and then they discovered gold in the Black Hills, and so they kicked them out of their own reservation. And so this has been going on since since Confederation. And, uh, you know, my own, this is what happens when, when you get a bunch of Puritans and uh, Puritans and uh, Calvinists loaded onto a ship and uh, told to sail to the New World because you're misbehaving back here at home. <laughs> and, so, and so this is my theory you know you you, you have these uh, and you know the same holds with, with Australia, Australia was originally designed as a penal colony and so yeah. you know you, you, you take your uh, your undesirables and you ship them off somewhere else and so this was the birth of the United States of America
1: and then look having, where we're at now look at this craziness
0: yeah, absolutely. And you know, having said that, I have some American friends and they are real good people, okay? Oh, yeah. And uh come on. I do not dislike the Americans, but I dislike their uh, I, I dislike their de- ideology. I dislike their politics. Uh the last great president they probably ever had was Teddy Roosevelt back in 1902-1905 uh, <laughs> uh, and the Rough Riders and you know, I'll I'll give a um, uh I'll give a uh oh I don't know a passing thing to uh to uh Franklin Delano Roosevelt you know as, especially during uh you know the depression years uh... 1932 onwards before his deal. death in 19 19- Yeah but I mean everything's changed now and and everything is is geared toward the mighty dollar and uh if you're not good-looking enough, if you're not strong enough, if, if you if you're not, uh, you know, you're not wanted, and so we're going to get you out of the way, type of thing. And so it's, um, but no, you know what what I what I see happening here in in the coming uh, months and really is we're going to have another, I believe, uh, 1962 Cuban Missile Crisis like scenario where uh you know something's gonna happen in Syria or maybe elsewhere where um uh, you know, heaven forbid, uh there's going to be another accident uh that you saw with the American uh Air Force bombing uh and killing uh anywhere between sixty two and eighty three Syrian soldiers just yeah. outside of the air Azor. And so but you you're gonna have something happening where it's gonna involve uh many Russian casualties or, you know, heaven forbid, another, you know, Russian fighter gets shot out of the sky. But, you know, the policy hasn't changed or the narrative hasn't changed since uh, 2011 when uh, Obama said Assad must go. And they haven't changed or wavered an inch on that. And so this is what's frightening to me is is that if Aleppo is, for example, uh, retaken or liberated, Then it's going to uh, give the whole country a huge uh, morale boost. It's it's going to uh, boost Russia uh, in in the eyes of the world as a uh, as a regional power. And so, this is something you know that the U.S. will not allow. And so, my worry is, you know, again, it's the uh, irresistible force meeting an immovable object. What happens? And um, you know, we we haven't been here before. This is the uh, the neat thing about history is history, you're always talking about the past, what you said five seconds ago. But you don't know, you know, unless there's a trend going in, in a certain direction. But uh, there's a lot of in, in, intangibles involved right now with the Middle East and elsewhere, even the South China Sea, where you have these uh, tripwires all over the world. And, you know, a miscalculation, uh, you know, something doesn't go according to script and all of a sudden you're in a whole new reality and that's frightening
1: it is it is frightening so peter how would you wrap it up for people to to digest what we've all gone through what should they be doing what should what sort of outlook should they have what change what changes should they be ready for or willing to accept
0: well i i think Uh, what people need to do and you know you have to understand that we live in a very very fast-paced society and so you know we're going to grab headlines off our Twitter, off uh, Instagram, off you know newspapers if people still read newspapers uh, but the internet but people are so busy they only look at the headlines. I would suggest to people Try and find half an hour, you know, and if you're really concerned about uh, something going on in the world, whether it's uh, local, provincial, national, international, you know, try and, you know, get uh, another side of it or, you know, this is what we study in symbolic logic this year at, at university is, is it's uh, rigorous steps. To arriving at a truth functionally valid argument, for example, and the thing is with with human beings, and it's very very difficult to do, very difficult is is when faced with a crisis, uh, you're not going to sit back and think rationally for about two minutes. You're going to react emotionally first. Yeah, and it has to be remembered that um, the uh, propaganda that comes out of uh, you know, these major papers and uh, these uh, broadcasters, they are feeding on your emotions. Um, you know, we're not getting facts of why, for example, why the planes flew in to the buildings uh, on nine eleven. Nobody asked, uh, well, why did they do this in the first place? Exactly. Yeah, and so... Uh, try not to get too emotionally involved in stories. Try and be as objective as possible, but read other sources as, as well. And, uh, you know, don't take the truth, uh, you know, at face value because it likely isn't the truth or there's something else, you know, that has either been misplaced, omitted, or, you know, simply ignored, you know, for whatever reason. And, and the thing I would tell everybody who's listening to this is que bono. Who benefits? Mm-hmm. So who who benefits from a uh, from an uh, unstable Syria? Does Bashar al-Assad ben, benefit from an unstable uh, Syria? I don't believe so. Mm-hmm. Does Russia benefit from a uh, unstable Syria? I don't think so. So you know, think along those lines. Uh, who who benefits? Or even better yet, follow the money trail. Follow and the money. You're gonna t- yeah, it's going to take you back uh, closer to the truth anyways.
1: Man, well, we just went through so much. I'm sure we could talk for for hours and hours and hours, and there's a lot more stuff we uh, will have to get to. I'm sure we could uh, set another time to go through uh, yes. more stuff.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, you know, I I really, really enjoyed this, uh, this conversation. Or uh, as uh, that uh, character says in uh, The Last Samurai, I have enjoyed this conversation <laughs> Oh, I love that movie. It's such a good movie yeah, yeah. it is It's is real good, and you know, um, part of my problem is i'm I'm an old fossil, I'm still an idealist, and uh, you yeah. know, I still root for the underdog, and I still believe in white hats and black hats, and you know uh, m- m- my favorite army of all time, for example, was uh, robert e. lee's uh, Army of uh, Northern Virginia and uh, that's another topic but you know what uh i i like the underdogs and you know i i just would like to see a more cooperative fair world you know because human beings have so much capability of of doing so many good things yeah they do and yeah and emotionally you know we are no further ahead than uh than um you know, Julius Caesar and his legions were in uh, Germania in 44 B.C. or 46 BC, uh, 46 B.C. And, you know, we need to change uh, from I want this to do we need this,
1: ah, you know, like yeah.
0: change the I to we. And, uh, you know, ego works well when you're one on one with a saber-toothed tiger and your survival depends on how well you throw your spear. Yeah. But uh, when you are living collectively in a large city or in, in you know, with a large group of people, which is uh, the way the world is turning to be, there's no room for ego anymore. You know, it's cooperation. That's what promotes survival. So that's just my thoughts on that. That's, Anyways.
1: that's the diamond. That's the gem. Dropping gems over here. That's yeah. uh, lots of knowledge, man. And uh, thanks, Peter, so much for doing this for me, man.
0: Yeah, and thank you, Derek, for inviting me uh, on this uh, on this uh, podcast because uh, I mean it's I enjoy talking about things like this, and uh, I hate small talk like what's <laughs> the weather going to be like tomorrow? I don't care, just cut my hair, please. I want to be out of here in ten minutes. <laughs> exactly. So, yeah. So um, I hope to talk to you again soon, Derek, and uh, thank you again for all of this. I've enjoyed it.
1: Great, Peter. Talk soon, man.
0: Yeah. Take care. Take Bye-bye. care. Bye bye.